Welcome to episode 48 of the Christian Feminist Podcast on the feminism of Dorothy Sayers. With me today are, I'm Katie Grubbs, with me today are Marie Haas and Alexis Neal. How are you guys doing? Very good, thanks. Not too bad. So um, we're all pretty regular uh, contributors to the podcast, but just in case there are any new listeners out there, we're going to go quickly around the horn and introduce ourselves. Why don't you start, Alexis? Sure. My name is Alexis Neal. Uh, I teach at Southwest Baptist University in uh, southwestern Missouri. Um, I'm only part-time there. Uh, the rest of the time, I'm home hanging out with my uh, uh, toddler and uh, growing another one we're expecting later this year. Uh, my husband's full-time on the faculty there at Southwest Baptist, and uh, devoted fans of the Christian Humanist Network may uh, know him from the City of Man podcast that he co-hosts with Edward Song. Thanks. How about you, Marie? Um, I'm Marie Haas. Um, I am a perennial graduate student, I guess. I just finished a PhD in early modern literature at uh, Florida State University and then went right on to now I'm working on a Master of Arts in Religion with a concentration in women's gender and sexuality studies at Yale Divinity School. Um, so that's what I'm doing studying and studying and um so i'm up in connecticut now with uh my husband of two months now um jonathan we got married this summer so that's that's what's been going on with me thanks and i'm katie grubbs i live in houston texas where i'm an adjunct professor of english at houston baptist university like alexis i'm part-time and uh i also spend uh, a significant portion of the rest of my time when I'm not teaching with our three children. We have a four-year-old and uh, an almost two-year-old and an eight-month-old who is already walking. So uh, things are a little bit crazy in our house, but it's it's always a lot of fun. And uh, my husband, David Grubbs, is on the Christian Humanist podcast, so listeners might uh, recognize him from, from that show, but also from this one. Um, Anyone who uh, is listening to this podcast who has already listened to our Twilight Zone crossover event will have heard him on the Christian Feminist podcast on the last episode. So um, he was he kind of finally got to cross over to our world. And um, I'm currently still kind of working on some trying to submit some things for publication, too. So that's kind of part of my life right now. I feel like I should take advantage of only teaching part-time to maybe uh, try to get a little bit out there since I haven't really been published before. So that's kind of fun too. And we're going to go ahead and move on to our uh, background stuff. I just wanted to give a quick background on Dorothy Sayers for any listeners who aren't familiar with her. Uh, Dorothy L. Sayers was born in 1893 and uh, died in 1957. She was many things. Most people know her as a writer of detective stories, detective novels and short stories. 
particularly featuring her detective Lord Peter Whimsey, though not all. Um, she does have some stories that don't feature Lord Peter. Some other ones feature a guy called Montague Egg, who is a traveling salesman. So she did dip her toe into some other kind of detective stuff, not involving Lord Peter, but he's the most famous character that she worked with. But she also was um, a scholar and a gifted translator. She graduated from Oxford University very early on in 1915 uh, before women's degrees were even really being awarded. Um, they weren't awarded till later. She went to Somerville College at Oxford. And um, she was a playwright, she was a poet, she wrote essays, and uh, as I mentioned before, she was a translator. She translated um, Dante's Divine Comedy, and she was also fluent in French, and very, very proficient in Latin. So, very accomplished woman, and uh, a very, very wonderful writer. I'm showing my, I'm showing my colors. I, can't, I cannot be objective about Dorothy Sayers, which will become clear as the evening goes on. But um, tonight, we want to focus on her, particularly her writings in the area of feminist thought. We're going to be discussing in a little while uh, two essays that she wrote, and then also one of her novels, Gaudy Night, which deals with some of the same themes that we see in the essays. So before we go further, though, I wanted to just kind of give us a chance to all share just a, a few minutes about when we first became acquainted with Dorothy Sayers with her writing and um, if we had an experience before with some of her, her thoughts on feminism. So um, why don't you go ahead and start, Marie? Sure. Um, I guess I probably first heard of Dorothy Sayers when I was reading the biographies of Tolkien and Lewis, and she's mentioned in passing as like, oh, that was the female inkling, um, which is slightly ironic, I suppose, given the content of the essays that we're about to look at, that um, it's her gender that would identify her um, in that context, um, and that it's her gender really that's a reason that we're discussing her tonight as well. Um, but that, that yeah, we'll, we'll talk more about that in the edits. Um, I only started reading... Uh, her novels of a couple years ago, and I haven't read, I haven't read most of them. Um, but the ones I've read, I've enjoyed, and I've read especially the ones that include the character Harriet Vane, who's um, this fascinating, uh, fascinating character who is like Sayers, a graduate of Oxford and a writer of detective fiction, um, and who's featured in the novel that we read for discussion tonight, Gaudy Night, um, which is probably my favorite of her novels that I've read, so I'm happy to be discussing it tonight. Uh, what about you, Alexis? Um, well, I'm a fairly new initiate into the world of Sayers. Um, I hadn't heard of her. Um, very unacademic motivations drew me to her. I, I basically had listened to all of the audio downloads available through my library for Agatha Christie, and uh, Wodehouse. And so I was uh, trying to find something similar like that th to listen to. Um, and I don't even remember how it was that I was it was recommended to me to try Sayers. Um, and so I, I just started listening through um, some of the audiobooks, which are narrated by, uh, for the most part, narrated by one of the gentlemen who portrays Lord Peter in um, most of the film adaptations, which I haven't seen. Uh, and they're, they're pretty well done. Uh, and in the last 18 months or so, I basically have blown through the, the 11 novels that were actually written by 
Sayers. I haven't read any of the the subsequent ones that were finished or or written by uh, Jill Patton Walsh. Um, so I, I really enjoyed the the novels. Um, this this is my first exposure to her nonfiction was in preparation for this podcast though, because um, I just I. I've been a fan of detective fiction for a long time, particularly that that golden age drawing room mystery, gentleman detective uh, genre. Um, of the ones I've read, um, uh, the 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 book where uh, Harriet Vane, uh, who you mentioned, Marie, where she's introduced, uh, Strong Poison, uh, I liked quite a bit. Although less because of Harriet and more because of uh, the Cattery, which uh, we'll talk about, I'm sure, later, later um, an organization run by uh, Lord Peter. Uh, and I actually also really liked um, the the book that follows the one we're talking about tonight uh, called Busman's Honeymoon, um, which actually deals with uh, Harriet and Lord Peter figuring out what it means to be married as these two independent and intelligent persons. Um, so uh, so I've liked those a lot as well. Um, I actually, um, as, as much as I know that Harriet is, is significant, particularly for purposes of our discussion, I really find uh, Lord Peter's relationship with his manservant Bunter to be very fascinating. Um, that, that sort of loyal, devoted um, master-servant relationship where uh, their, their, their obligations and the tasks that they do are very sort of established by, by their roles, but the mutual affection and mutual esteem uh, is very much equal, I think. Um, and I just, I always think that's really interesting in, in any, in any story. So I really like the, the Bunter stuff more than, um, more than even the Harriet stuff. Uh, so yeah, I basically just came as a very unacademic detective fiction fan looking for more golden age detective fiction to read. What about you, Katie? Um, I, I have to give credit to my husband for introducing me to Dorothy Sayers. I had not read, I had, I had never read her before we met, in like 2007 I guess um, was when we started dating so but I had read you know like you mentioned I had read Agatha Christie I had read lots of other you know kind of British mystery stories and David said I think you will really like Dorothy Sayers I think you should check this out so I kind of started reading my way through those novels early in our marriage and I I've read all of the novels um, I had and I actually even I taught Whose Body the very first Lord Peter Whimsey um, in a detective fiction focused freshman composition class that I did at UGA. And that was really fun. My students were definitely not as much fans of Sayers as I was. In retrospect, I think possibly the freshman mentality is not the best one to bring to Dorothy Sayers detective fiction <laughs> writing. Um, I think I was a little too ambitious maybe with that. And also whose body I think is um, even, I think there might've been some other ones that might've been more appealing to them. But uh, I, I've read all the short stories uh, about Lord Peter Whimsey and also all the other ones. And I particularly have a, a soft spot for a couple of the short stories, one of, one of which is called Tall Boys. And um, that one actually, Alexis, if you've never read that one, that one takes place years and years later in the same house where they spend their honeymoon for Bestman's honeymoon. And has, you know, there, there are three small children there, and it's, it's very sweet. And it's kind of a nice epilogue um, to their... To, to the story in Bestman's Honeymoon, particularly as that novel doesn't exactly end happily. Um, right. There's resolution, but but yeah, it's not like a nice pretty bow on the end. So, um, and then there's another one that's very, very fun and that I actually can't remember the name of, but that involves a very small 
um, a very young Viscount St. George, who's Lord Peter Wimsey's nephew, um, spending the holidays with his uncle because there's like measles at his prep school or something. And his parents are in Europe. So he has to go stay with Uncle Peter. And there's a little mystery involving like a treasure map, the kind of mystery that a little boy might find exciting. And that one's really, really fun. As far as the novels go, I think that I, I really, really love Gaudy Night, and I, and, I, and I love Busman's Honeymoon. I, Alexis is right. That one is particularly interesting. Those are my two novels that any time I'm looking at my shelf and I'm thinking, I need a book to read before bed. What do I want to read? What do I want to read right before I go to sleep? And then I'll either, if I can't think of anything else, I'll pick up Gaudy Night or I'll pick up Busman's Honeymoon. So those two I've read through many, many times. But I have read all the others at least once. Um, Murder Must Advertise is very interesting. That's one for listeners who've not read it. Lord Peter takes a post in an advertising agency, kind of incognito under a different name, to try to figure out um, the the reason behind a murder that happened in the agency. And that one's very fun. There's lots of interesting thought and talk about advertising and slogans and how do you get people to buy a product. So that one is actually, I think, very interesting and would be particularly to people who are involved in the business world as a profession. So um, I, and I, and then I had never, as I I said earlier, um, or maybe didn't, I can't remember, that I had wanted to read the essays that we're reading tonight are Women Human and the not the human not quite human um they're usually bound together in the same volume i had always wanted to read them and heard of them but had never taken the time to sit down and really explore those and i thought if we do an episode on this then that will give me a great reason to dig in and i'm so glad i did i particularly enjoyed them and um, she has other nonfiction writing too i know a lot of people love her essay the lost tools of learning they actually did a whole episode on that on the christian humanist podcast and there are um kind of classical schools i guess christian classical schools that that base their whole kind of curriculum on the way that she said that is really optimal for children to learn so that's also very interesting but um let's go ahead and move forward because i know we want to be able to get to all three and I, and I also, before we move on, have to commend my co-podcasters tonight for uh, the fact that they just rolled with it when I said, hey, let's read essays and a novel. <laughs> um, I, that was uh, maybe perhaps a little bit ambitious. But um, I think we're going to start with a quick summary of the essay, Are Women Human? And um, we're gonna, for that, we're going to turn to Alexis. Yeah, so... Um I feel like these essays, I love the essays, but I thought that in many ways they were difficult to summarize. Uh, And part of that is because um, I was really struck reading them how similar Sayers' style is to some of the nonfiction um, written by uh, uh, C.S. Lewis or or Chesterton, um, which, of course, makes sense. Um, And particularly some of the radio addresses that Lewis did that that we now can read in written form. Um, and, And part of that is, you know, she's got this like, big picture idea sort of that is the point of the talk or, or uh, which this was and address. Um, but when you try to sort of break it down, it's not like, this is my point. Here's sub point a sub point B and sub point C with, you know, a topic sentence and uh, all of this stuff. It, it's much more stream of consciousness um, and in a very persuasive and engaging way, using a lot of uh, very specific and uh, accessible examples and illustrations. So uh, if you've read, you know, a lot of C.S. Lewis's work, like you know, Mere Christianity or Abolition of Man, things like that, um, it's very much in that vein, which can make it a little difficult, I think, to summarize. Um, 
This particular essay was actually an address given to some women's society um, in 1938. Um, and uh, yeah, so she she is basically her, her big, big picture idea, her big idea she's trying to get across is that uh, women are not this special subcategory of person. They are, in fact, individuals who are fully as human as, as man, men. So the idea is not... Um, that uh, the sort of default human is a man, and then there's this this special other category that are women that are this special interest group. Um, and so uh, specifically that if you want to talk about what women want or what women think, uh, she pushes back on that and says, well, women have as, as many varied opinions and thoughts as men do um, and as humans do. And so you actually need to start getting down to the individual level to, to find out what this particular woman, this particular human wants or, or uh, is looking for. Um, so, so her, her essay is primarily illustrating how we don't think that way um, and how we ought to think that way. Um, so, uh, yeah, and there's just there's a lot in there um, to talk about um, uh, as a starting off point that I thought was really interesting uh, is that she expresses some reluctance to be classified as a feminist, uh, specifically because um, she thinks that in many ways you could argue the time for feminism has passed, which is I think really interesting because, of course, that is something we still hear people say today. Um, and it's uh, this was, you know, this was 1938. Um, and I had to look up the, the, the dates for, for suffrage. But it's not all that long after women could vote in the U.S. or, or in the U.K. Um, but already she's sort of uh, uh, talking about whether or not feminism is sort of a, a, a view from the past that is no longer necessary. Um yeah, so uh, that I thought was particularly interesting, like I said, given the fact that we're still having that conversation some, you know, 80 years later. Uh, a couple of things from this essay that I thought were particularly interesting um, is that she's writing, you know, this is after World War One, but before, well, sort of before World War Two is, is in, in full swing. Um, and so uh, there had been an influx of women into the workplace during that first world war. And then there had been the pushback as the men came back and, and didn't necessarily uh, feel great about women being in those jobs and the women were, were then evicted from those. Um, and so she talks about the accusation that women are trying to steal men's jobs. And, and one of the really interesting observations that she makes is that actually men stole women's jobs first, which is not something that I had heard articulated quite like that before. Uh, her point is that women's place being in the home meant something very different prior to the Industrial Revolution. Um, so she offers a list of what it meant to be working in the home and what that would include um, back before the Industrial Revolution. So things like spinning, dyeing, weaving, catering, brewing, distilling, preserving, pickling, bottling, bacon curing, and whenever the man is absent, a certain, a certain amount of management of landed estates. Uh, so she points out that then the Industrial Revolution comes along, all of these things that used to be done on a small scale within the home are now handled on the large scale in factories with uh, male factory managers. Um, and so basically you've gutted the home um, uh, tasks or, or, or home uh, field of work of all of these significant, interesting, challenging, intellectually stimulating uh, activities 
And then uh, given those essentially to, to men to do in the workplace, and then now you're turning around and complaining that women would like to do something else. Um, so uh, you know, take away the woman's traditional occupation and then complain when she looks for a new one. Uh, and like I said, that was that was a really, I thought, a very insightful observation, particularly uh, to me. I, I grew up very much hearing you know the woman's places in the home, uh, but you know, with this idea that the home looks like what it looked like in 1950 and not not really having that appreciation of of history and what that looked like and how diverse um, and varied home tasks were when you know the family's business was based out of the home and the husband was also working out of the home and, and there were all these different aspects to that. Um, so I appreciated that per, that perspective um, that uh, when we say a woman's place is in the home, what that means has has changed dramatically. Um, and, uh, and there's an element, yeah, in which, in which men took, took those jobs on themselves long before women tried to take the, the stereotypically masculine, um, jobs. Um, so that I thought was a particularly interesting point. I also thought it was interesting that, that despite her focus on the individual, uh, she did not decry all categorization or generalization as bad. And I know sometimes I think we hear people say that, that you can't make any kind of generalization or stereotype about anybody um, because it might not be true for someone. And and she seemed to be saying that it's okay to have a stereotype or to have a generalization as long as you only use it for the limited purpose that it's designed to serve. And basically you're willing to accept uh, that individual persons may be data point outliers that don't match that. Um, so it may be true that women in general behave a particular way, but if a woman comes along and she's interested in something different, um, there's no reason that she can't um, – and there's no reason that she can't be allowed to pursue those interests, uh, then that should be accommodated. So I thought that was a really interesting point. Um, although she kind of pushed it, I think, in some ways farther than I think we would push it today, um, because she doesn't, she, she sort of seems to be uncomfortable with the idea of looking for a woman's point of view, uh, because her whole point is there's no such thing as a woman's point of view. It's individual women, individual humans. Um, and so she makes this distinction between certain kinds of topics where a woman's experience or specialized knowledge as a member of the class of women might be useful, um, but then other areas where it's not. Um, so she, the example she gives is, you know, the woman's view of an equilateral triangle um, and that that's not, not a helpful um, or even a real viewpoint. There is no uniquely feminine viewpoint on that. And I have not spent any time, um, in an academic setting, studying women's studies or, or, or women's uh, uh, literary critique styles, things like that. And I know that there's a lot um, of ink out there on those things. And I was wondering um, how y'all felt about that. Um, uh, and if you sort of agreed with her distinction between the, the things where women have a view and the things where they do not, and whether it's beneficial to study that, that woman's view or woman's way of thinking about something. Um, Marie, you go ahead and take point on that, I think, because you probably made more of a study from the academic side of that particular a kind of a, a theoretical women's viewpoint. Um, well, this is something where I think the the second essay that we're looking at uh, really made clearer for me in terms of how I could think about uh, Sayers writing and perhaps a progress or a a uh, change in her thinking about the woman's point of view, though 
I shouldn't say that, actually. I'm not sure that her, her idea of the woman's point of view and um, uh, changes between the two essays, but that the second essay sort of informs how I think it should have changed. <laughs> um, so perhaps I should come back to it when we get to the second essay. Um, but I would say I do think that there can be um, a woman's point of view kind of writing in literary studies um, as opposed to what Sayers doing in this particular essay. I thought I thought it was kind of interesting that she that she points out too that this kind of woman's point of view thing at times is is not it's not always defined the same way and so then it can contradict itself. So she talks about how um and I'm going to quote her in the old days it used to be said that women were unsuited to sit in parliament because they would quote would not be able to think imperially. Um and then Sayers talking again uh, that, if it meant anything, meant that their views would be cramped and domestic, in short, the woman's point of view. And she goes on to say, though, that now that, that there are women in Parliament, that some people complain that they're, that these women in Parliament are a disappointment, quote, they vote like other people with their party and have contributed nothing to speak of from the woman's point of view, except on a few purely, purely domestic questions, and even then they are not all agreed. It looks as though somebody was trying to have things both thing, both ways at once. So she kind of makes the point that it doesn't really, you know, that people say, oh, a woman's point of view, then that would make them unsuited for something like parliament. But then when they finally make it there and act like, Sayers would say, act like human beings, right? Show loyalty to their party, you know, kind of um, behave as, as the men do pretty much in terms of voting, then everybody now is suddenly disappointed that it's not that that what they thought was going to happen has not happened because now somehow it's seen as maybe a positive thing like maybe they should be showing more of a woman's point of view and i I can kind of see what she's saying from that angle is that it, it it could be a positive thing to have a woman's point of view but i think she seems to be trying to say that it can also be a restriction maybe um something that uh could be limiting for a woman and i you're right i think that comes in more in the second essay um, but yeah, she makes this distinction between this general, the woman's point of view that every woman is is expected to hold to, um, and a woman's special knowledge, something that she might be expected to know based on activities that are linked to female experience. Um, and uh, so, what she's doing with with decrying this expectation that all women will hold to the woman's point of view is, of course, uh, pointing out the, the individual humanity of women, as she's doing throughout the essay. Um, she's also pointing out the double binds that are placed on women in terms of expectations, which is something that she does, uh, not only in this essay, but all throughout the second essay as well. Um, uh, oh, something that struck me in in this passage on uh, the woman's point of view, too, was it reminded me of um, Marcella Althaus Reed and her book on in, her book titled Indecent Theology, where she's um, she complains at one point about how sometimes in theology we'll get this trend uh, to allow for these articles, um, especially on Mary, articles or books uh, uh, on on the Virgin Mary um, or on women of the Bible uh, from the woman's point of view or through women's eyes, um, is what she says, and that this, while it's, you know, 
good to look at female characters in the Bible, for example. Um, just adding that the idea that this is coming from a woman's perspective doesn't necessarily change patterns of power or alter oppression um, or that sort of thing. So it can be uh, it can be just a passive activity rather than actually altering a system that would separate um, women from men in, in this hierarchy. Uh, so so perhaps there's Maybe a little of that going on here, too. I'm not sure. Thanks. I really appreciate that that perspective because I think, like I said, I, I don't have the the academic background to, to necessarily have, have thought about this carefully before. Um, I think there were a couple more points that I, I thought were really interesting in this first essay. Um, one is just an illustration I thought that she made that was really effective, uh, and that was talking about when women do men things um, – and she, she divided them into are, are, are those those ma- male activities that the women are copying? Are they trousers or braces, uh, suspenders? Um, and, and so from her perspective, trousers are something that are practical and comfortable. That is, any human being might want to do them just by virtue of being human for human non-gendered reasons. Um, but that braces are something that men do. And there is no from her perspective, there's no practical benefit to them. They're unsightly. They're just they're useless. And the only reason to do it is because men do it. And so she's talking about some of the behavior uh, of women uh, in academia and uh, things that fall under the category of, you know, normal human desires that they would have as human persons uh, that happen to be things men have also done versus things that they're doing explicitly to mimic or, or ape uh, the men, even if the, the things themselves are stupid, like going out and, and getting drunk, uh, not because they're just having a, an overflow of merriment, but specifically to mimic the men, and that that she seems to think is, is profoundly stupid. Um, so I thought that was a really interesting observation, and, and like I said, uh, reminded me a lot of Lewis in that that effective, simple illustration. Is it trousers? Is it braces? Is it something that has merit on its own for a rational thinking human to want to do? Or or is it a case of a woman really trying to do a thing just because a man has done it and not because she as a human being uh, actually has a desire to do that thing? Um, the other thing I think would be interesting to talk about maybe a little bit um, her her view of work is very much whoever is qualified to do the work should do the work. And, and we'll talk about this, I'm sure, um, in the second essay and in the novel. Um, so if you have a, a woman who is a, a gifted and able mechanic, she should be able to be a mechanic. If you have a woman who wants to study Aristotle, she should be able to study Aristotle. Uh, and that there shouldn't be a discussion about, but she's a woman. It's just, is she qualified? Is she interested? Um, she's a human person. She can do the work. Um, and I thought it was interesting because reading that today, I think we can it's easy to assume that that means that she would necessarily have had a similar view with regard to roles within the church. Um, But she doesn't talk about that explicitly in these essays. She's she the examples that she's using are are secular um, jobs. And so uh, I I know Katie and I have been on podcasts uh, before talking about the the view of complementarianism and, and what that means and whether it has any application outside of Uh, the church or the home. But I thought it was interesting because I don't know anything about whether or not Dorothy Sayers, uh, for example, would have supported the ordination of women um, all the way back in 1938, or if uh, her view would have been more that that the church is this separate animal. um, And it's not just about, hey, you're a capable preacher, you should be allowed to preach or or whatever. Um, 
and I don't know, do either of you know anything about what her views were or, or might have been with regard to um, to women in, in roles of leadership within the church? That I would have to research. I don't know, though. I suspect from um, the second essay, The Human Not Quite Human, um, and it's addressed to the church that she is arguing for some sort of um, equality for women within the church. Um, but I'm not. Yeah, I'd have to. I'd have to look up. Yeah, I don't. I'm not sure about that. I, you know, and it's funny. I, I've I've wondered similar things, Alexis, and I, I I kind of particularly the ways that she because she has a pair of characters in her novels who meet and then marry and in and, and particularly in Bestman's Honeymoon in the lead up to their wedding have discussions about should you know well should I I don't should I promise to obey and and what does that mean and so I think just from the fiction there are certain ideas that I think I might say about how she might feel at least about roles in marriage but you're right I, I feel like she plays it at least very close to the vest in the fiction about what she might think about the church but that's also an interesting thing too because she was absolutely a Christian writer in the sense that she was a writer who was Christian um, but her most famous character is decidedly not you know um strongly that way i mean i feel like there's even something in um i think it's in gaudy night where he feels you know it's said that he feels uncomfortable to think about um possessing a soul and that he's self-conscious because he remembers enough about you know it being tough hearts you know the rich man going through the or is like a camel through the eye of the needle do you know what i'm talking about into the gates of heaven so he seems lord peter seems to be uncomfortable with the idea of um you know, kind of faith and, and, and the way that her characters are. I mean, they go to the university sermon, but it's because it's soothing. So it she, she doesn't show her cards, I feel like, very much at all in the fiction. And because that's what I'm most familiar with, I'm not sure about the answer to that question. That was a really long-winded way to say, I don't know. <laughs> Sorry. Well, I, it's, I mean, it's kind of the impression I got that sort of our our way of sort of, you know, you know, extrapolating from our view of the, of the, you know, secular view of work and then sort of taking that into the church. I just, I don't know if that was something that would have been common that, that far back, or if it just would have been, well, no, this is obviously an exception. And I just, I, I wasn't sure. Um, those were the, the specific points that I thought were really interesting about the first um, essay. Did uh, Katie, did you have anything else you wanted to add about the first essay? Yeah, just just a just one or two things. She she has this kind of um, not super lengthy, but she has a, a slightly involved discussion of Queen Elizabeth when she's talking about um, it. You should do the job that you're you're set to do, and she makes the point that she says, in her opinion, there's only one human being in a thousand who's passionately interested in his job for the job's sake. And the difference is that if that person is a man, people say he's passionately keen on his job. If she's a woman, people say that she's a freak. Um, and that kind of comes back when she's discussing Queen Elizabeth because she talks about all these years of scholarship, everyone, you know, talking about how she's a mystery and, you know, she was complicated and astonishing and why was she so successful and, you know, all of this kind of um, intrigue surrounding her. And uh, she says that, that it's only recently have that people have begun to kind of say that the solution might be simple, which is that she quote, she might be one of the rare people who were born into the right job and put that job first. And Sayer says, you know, all of these riddles kind of clear themselves up. If you 
you basically say, you know, take away all the feminine intrigue from Queen Elizabeth, the the woman angle, and um, and you know, she says as to feminine mystery, there's no such thing about it. And nobody, had she been a man, would have thought either her statesmanship or her humanity in any way mysterious. And I thought that was such an interesting Queen Elizabeth, such an interesting example to kind of think through these ideas that she's talking about. Of we should we should view ourselves as humans and not as innately different. Um, and that was one of my one of the most interesting parts to me. The other thing that I think is interesting, particularly how it contrasts with the way that we talk today, is her insistence, though, that you know. So she talks about, like Alexa said, that you should do the job that you're good at. That that's important. And that if you are a woman who wants to study Aristotle, you should do that. But she also makes the point that this doesn't mean that every woman should study Aristotle. Simply that the, the one human woman who wants to study Aristotle, she should be able to pursue that because that is her desire. And, you know, it's her right as a human to pursue it. And she says the same thing later. Alexis mentioned the, the woman mechanic. Um, you know, she says that, well, at least in her time, few women happen to be natural-born mechanics, but if there is one, it is useless to try and argue her into being something different. And then she follows that up to say what we must not do is argue that the occasional appearance of a female mechanical genius proves that all women would be mechanical geniuses if they were educated. They would not. And that is especially interesting because there's there's been such a push. Um, I think that would be kind of considered a little bit controversial what she says there nowadays because there's been a huge push and I, I think this is great but there's been a huge push to try to get um, girls interested in the STEM fields and, and coding and, and all these different kind of um, more science and math based processes rather than stressing um, the liberal arts with girls because there is this kind of sex imbalance um, or gender imbalance in those fields and I, I wonder if Sayers would actually if she would approve of some of that because she seems to really take the view that everyone should have men and women should have all the opportunities that are out there but that doesn't mean that you know ev and she says every woman's not going to be just as good as every man at everything even if given the opportunity and i think now we tend to head more the other way the way of saying well if women were given every opportunity in the exact same education as men then every woman could you know be just as good right as every man whereas she really really sticks to her idea of us as co-humans i think to its logical conclusion if you're going to treat everyone as an individual then there's not room for you know for saying that all women could be just as good as at as at everything as all men and and it goes the other way too you know um and I think she would say the same thing, that she would say it would be a mistake to assume that any woman would be a better caretaker for small children, for example, because um, that's my life right now. You know, she would say, I think she would say it would be a mistake for people to say that any woman would be a better caretaker of a small child than any given man. Well, no, there might be some men out there who are very capable caretakers of children, even though we usually think of that as something that women excel at more. So, you know, she, and, and she even says towards the end of the essay, makes some even more strong statements on that topic of um, of the that you have to, to look at the individual. She says a difference of age is as fundamental as a difference of sex and so is a difference of nationality. All categories, if they are insisted upon beyond the immediate purpose which they serve, breed class antagonism and disruption in the state and that is why they are dangerous. Um, Alexis mentioned earlier the idea of the immediate purpose. So, you know, she 
she really stresses that, I think, to the ultimate in a way that might, I think, might be considered perhaps uncomfortable today and for some people. And one other thing that I, and I know I've talked for a long time, one other thing I just wanted to say is I think she hints at, but though she never uses the words, I think she also hints at the idea of kind of separate spheres for men and women. Um, and she definitely talks about that when she's discussing how, as she says, all the interesting occupations in the sphere of the home have been taken out of it by the Industrial Revolution. And so, you know, now the men have all the interesting jobs and there's not much left for the women. But um, she seems to have scant regard for the idea of separate women's and men's spheres. And I think one of the places you can see that is when near the end of the essay, she says a man once asked her um, if... Uh, how she managed to write such convincing conversation between men who were alone by themselves. Basically, how she managed to write such convincing all-male conversations. And, you know, did you have lots of brothers? And he's asking her how she knows. And she says, no, you know, I, I was an only child. I hardly ever spoke to a man uh, my own age until I was in my 20s. And he says, well, I, I wouldn't have expected it to be so convincing. And Sayers says that she replied that, Quote, I had coped with this difficult problem by making my men talk as far as possible like ordinary human beings. This aspect of the matter seemed to surprise the other speaker. He said no more, but took it away to chew it over. One of these days it may quite likely occur to him that women, as well as men, when left to themselves, talk very much like human beings also. And I loved that. That was one of my favorite parts because it really is a great, quick illustration of how she feels about men and women and and that really that there are many more similarities than differences in, in kind of our predilections and that we all just want to be able to pursue our human desires to have interesting occupation and to be able to be comfortable, you know, in our trousers, probably. So that was one of my other favorite parts. So do you think then, <clears throat> from Sayer's perspective, is there such a thing as a woman? Like, is there anything that's distinctive other than the experience that's sort of imp imposed upon her by society? Like, if you were trying to describe what a woman is beyond just the, 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 she is a human, like what, I, I, I was having trouble getting in that, in this essay, whether or not there was any content there under the category of this is what it means to be a woman as far as any innate characteristics. Um, because it was so much, well, she's just a human being. I mean, it just taking it on this essay, I would maybe say no. I, I don't think she, now, I don't know, I don't know that, that she didn't think there was anything innate about women or in woman, but just in this essay, no, I don't, I don't know that she's positing any traits or anything that is kind of innately woman that any woman would have. Though she also maybe seems to not be. I don't know that she would say the same about men either, though, that there's something that's innately male. I don't right. know. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and on that point, too, I think uh, in talking about how uh, we must not argue that the occasional appearance of a female mechanical genius proves that all women would be mechanical geniuses if they were educated. I'm pretty sure she would also say um, that... Uh, not all men would be mechanical geniuses if they were educated in, in mechanics, <laughs> um, too. So I'm not sure that she would necessarily be against um, a push for women in, in STEM, but eh, maybe. Um, but in terms of how she's treating categories, uh, categories of identity, yeah, that was really interesting to me. It felt very 
her writing here and in Gaudy Night too just felt more modern than the period. Like it's hard to believe uh, that it was this was the 1930s um, because it seems like she's talking about when she's talking about how we are much too inclined these days to divide people into permanent categories, forgetting that a category only exists for its special purpose and must be forgotten as soon as that purpose is served. Um, it sounds as if all categories of identity are temporary and transient there. Um, that's looking forward perhaps to a kind of uh, exclusion of all exclusion that's created by hierarchies that are inherent in our idea of there being uh, fundamental and permanent categories of identity. Um, that, that idea of exclusion of all exclusion is something that's been coming up a lot in a queer theology seminar that I'm taking. Um, and it, it's, yeah, it was, it was fun to me that her writing should sort of resonate with what's going on now in contemporary queer theology, um, which uh, is something that would probably surprise her. Um, but, but yeah, the idea that our human identities, our various categories are socially constructed and transient, um, and that in the end it's just we're all human, that's the thing that matters. That's that's a great point in this essay. Yeah, so I think I think what we see then, at least in this essay, is where her her theology comes through is men and women created in the image of God as humans, equal stature before the Father, but not necessarily created as male and female in in a way that at least she's articulating here um, has any clear meaning. Um, so, you know, the idea of biblical femininity or biblical masculinity and what it means to be a man and how that differs from what it means to be a woman. Um, if she has views on those issues based on her theology, we don't we just we don't see that here. Um, and as Katie pointed out, we'd be a little careful looking at at, uh, at the novels for that, because I don't think Harriet Vane or Lord Peter are supposed to be um particularly devout believers. Um, and so what they do is not necessarily a reflection of what she thinks um, someone who believes the Bible ought to do. Um, but thanks. That's really helpful. I was, I was thinking through that and I was just curious as, as to whether it would strike y'all in a similar way. Um, Marie, did you have anything else you wanted to talk about with regard to this first essay before we talk about uh, the second one? Um, no, I'll come back to the idea of the woman's perspective as we get into uh, talking about the second essay. And do you want to go ahead? Let, let's just go ahead and plunge right into that second essay, Marie. I think that it's a great time to transition. Okay, sure. Um, and sorry, I don't have as uh, eloquent a summary prepared as Alexis gave for the Are Women Human essay. Um, but this, the second essay titled The Human Not Quite Human, um, I've seen dated to 1941, which would be three years later than the Are Women Human essay, though um, I'd have to check where that date is coming from specifically. But it is, I think, a later essay. And in it, she's making, well, she she continues to make much the same central point that she made in the Are Women Human essay, and that is that women indeed are human, um, that that humanity is the fundamental point about any woman's identity, um, not that she has, in fact, a woman's identity, but that she is human. Um, 
she does this in a little bit different way here. And uh, like you guys, I was struck with the quality of her writing in terms of it, it reminding me of, say, C.S. Lewis. Um, and on that point, I should add that I do know that she's not technically an inkling, but uh, just sort of it just had heard of her in association with the inklings. But anyway, OK, so in this essay, she starts off with addressing the church um, uh, has failed to to take into account the most obvious feature of what is called woman question, the most obvious feature being that women are human beings. Um, and he has a little uh, explanation following this, that the the Latin term weir, um, she she takes as the the male human, femina as female, um, and homo as male and female. Um, and she points out this discontinuity in how men and women are treated in society and that man is always allowed to be both homo and weir, um, but, women is only, but woman is only treated as femina. So woman is not ascribed uh, the homo or human qualities that are attributed to man. And she gives some examples of um, on a bus – it said she has this, art, this example from a newspaper saying that the seats on the bus are always filled on the side towards uh, on the on the near side of the bus because men find it more comfortable and women like to look at shop windows. Um, and she's like, no, you know, women also <laughs> uh, experience bodily comfort and discomfort. This human quality, women are human beings as well. It's not just this feminine thing of shop windows. Um, and then she goes back to the example of trousers that we discussed from the first essay as well, um, that um, trousers could be taken as appropriate to any human creature with two legs, um, but it's it's not held uh, to be appropriate for femina, but only for weir because, um, because weir says so, basically, and because of uh, this kind of sexual reason of the innuendo of the skirt being open so that there's a sexual access. Um, okay, but then she goes off into this explanation of the double binds that are placed on women by society in terms of how they're they're constantly being surveilled by society in uh, in terms of their gender performance and being encouraged towards self surveillance. And she does this very wittily through a gender reversal and talking about how what it would be like if men were given this treatment and were only um, were only were only treated by society in terms of how well they're performing their gender and how well they are uh, suiting themselves solely for the house their home and for um, procreation um, that's a very uh, funny section of the essay um, and really shows what she's what she thinks about the strictures that are placed on women by society in terms of this surveillance and self-surveillance. Um, and that's 
that, I think, uh, to go back to the first essay, is something that would allow perhaps for this kind of women's perspective branch of literary criticism, for example, for feminist literary criticism. Um, if you think about her term in the first essay of uh, special knowledge that would be accorded to women. So in the second essay, we see her pointing out that women have this experience, this treatment of being lesser, lower in the hierarchy in society. Um, we could take that that experience um, as a kind of special knowledge that would allow women to be able to perhaps see the workings of this hierarchy um, because these structures of power are often more visible, um, understandably often more visible from below than from above. Um, and so perhaps we could say that there's this kind of special knowledge available that would allow for criticism of structures of power, of hierarchy, of oppression, um, because of that experience. Um, so that's what I was saying earlier about how I could see this second essay perhaps opening up that idea of uh, the woman's perspective from the first essay. Um, but then so she continues after this gender switched uh, section of the essay to talk about, um, she goes back to the idea of men having taken the, the women's jobs in terms of the many industries that in the Middle Ages were controlled by women, such as spinning, weaving, baking, etc. Um, and she ends up with a discussion of the Bible um, and of religion, which is very interesting, of course, to us. I hope we'll talk more about this final section in which she goes to the story of Mary and Martha and says that whenever she hears this story taught on in the church, um, get the idea that despite the, the biblical stories endorsement of Mary's actions in uh, learning um, and acting as a human disciple of the Lord. Um, the, the sermons always emphasize Martha's appropriately womanly actions. Um, and she sees this as emblematic of the church's treatment of women overall. And she, she accuses the church then of not actually following the practice uh, of Jesus because she says very powerfully um, that Jesus was uh, a prophet and a teacher who never nagged at them, them being women, never flattered or coaxed or patronized, who never made arch jokes about them, never treated them either as the women, God help us, or the ladies, God bless them, who rebuked without querulousness and praised without condescension, who took their questions and arguments seriously, who never mapped out their sphere for them, never urged them to be feminine or jeered at them for being female, who had no axe to grind and no uneasy male dignity to defend, who took them as he found them and was completely unselfconscious. Um, and very, very tellingly, she says uh, that that uh, there's no act, no sermon, no parable in the whole gospel that borrows its pungency from female perversity. Nothing could, nobody could possibly guess from the words and deeds of Jesus that there is anything funny about woman's nature. Um, but she then says that, that the church um, and Jesus's contemporaries and the prophets before him um, don't don't follow him in this way. 
um, that they are, you know, belittling women. Um, and an interesting point in terms of how she's using the Bible here, the final line, she ends with a reference to parable of Lazarus and the rich man when she says, in relation to the church's view of women, women are not human. Nobody shall persuade that they are human. Let them say what they like. We will not believe it, though one rose from the dead. Um, so that though one rose from the dead is uh, recalling that parable on how um, the rich man, when he's in Hades, is told that um, no one will be sent from the dead to warn his family to change their ways um, because they wouldn't believe it. So it's kind of a, a strong condemnation here, especially because um, in reference to the description of Jesus that came just before it, the one who rose from the dead is, of course, Jesus. And so um, the church is not following the teachings of Jesus and um, is then uh, synonymous to the rich man in Hades there. So, um, yeah, what are you guys' thoughts, especially about that last section and its treatment of the Bible? I um, I just absolutely, I, I, I just was blown away by that last page and I think quoted it in its entirety on my Facebook page, as one does when finding something that you like. Um, I, I thought it was interesting, especially this whole section that she never kind of turns, I guess, turns, though, to kind of talk about maybe the re some of the reasons behind all of um, the the kind of negativity regarding women. And, and I specifically, to me, she, she never talks about it as a sin thing, as a sin problem. And I thought that was interesting because that might be just the way that she speaks about Jesus and then about Jesus as opposed to his contemporaries and his prophets and the church, you know, uh, Jesus was, you know, the only one who was without sin. So is he the only man who never did these things um, in his interactions with women because he was Jesus? I mean, is it is it inevitable then? I, that, I guess that's, I thought that was interesting that she never mentioned sin, but that's kind of what I took away from that is then, okay, well, then the problem is sin. It's sin that causes this belittling and causes all of these attitudes towards women that she is responding to towards the end. And that's how I took it, but she never directly says it. And so I thought it was kind of, it was an interesting thing. I also, just in general with this essay, as opposed to the Are Women Human essay, to me her tone in this one is a lot more sharp. Um, like you said, very powerful, particularly at the end. She's not pulling any punches at all. And, um, and she's very pointed in the first essay, but, um, but not the way that she is in this one. And I don't know if that's because in the first, in the first one was an address given to women. Perhaps that's why this is slightly different tone. I don't know. Did you guys feel like they feel the same way? Were you kind of feeling a, the, the absence of, of a discussion of sin or not? Hmm. I didn't, I didn't think of, um, think of that particularly though. I, I, I mean, I get the sense from the way that she's condemning this treatment of women and this, this uh, societal structure that demeans women, um, that she would take that as uh, sin or as an indication of sin, but it's not um, stated in so many words. Lexis? Um, I mean, I think that's that certainly is a good reason. I think I think it's it's hard to gauge from the way that she phrases it on that last page if by 
Jesus contemporaries, she means people like Pharisees and uh, legal scholars who certainly were advocating a non-biblical treatment of women uh, that we see, you know, in things like the the woman who is brought to be stoned for somehow committing adultery, being caught in the act by herself, um, and uh, and other things where where women were clearly not being treated well by the the religious leaders of the day, uh, or if Sayers would even go a step further and say that maybe the other authors of scripture would also Paul. be contemporaries. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so like, right. So, but there's a big difference between saying, you know, Jesus is pushing it back, back against the Pharisees and Jesus is right. And the rest of scripture is right, including what's written by Paul and, and other new Testament authors. Or if she's, she's taking the, the uh, perspective, which we also see people say, which is Jesus is the only one who gets it right. And all of these other authors of scripture, despite being authors of scripture, were in some way mistaken about the way they taught about women. Uh, and so I can't tell from that if she is taking more of the Jesus versus the Pharisees or Jesus versus all of the disciples and apostles and leaders that that came after. Uh, and he is the sole one who, who has this, um, this true and accurate and correct view of women. Uh, I think I think I would I would agree with Sayers if she's saying the former, uh, because, like I said, I think we see ample evidence that the, the Pharisees were uh, leading people astray in a number of ways from what God had had set out. I would be less inclined to agree with her uh, if she is trying to take issue with uh, Paul for disagreeing with Jesus, just because of my view of, of Scripture uh, and its authority uh, and, it, it's, it's, and its inerrancy. And I, I don't know enough about Sayers to know. Uh, if she also would have affirmed those doctrines and therefore would have would have eschewed any interpretation that would undermine them, or if she was uh, more inclined to uh, to take Jesus uh, as uh, somehow separate from from the rest uh, of the written word. Yeah, that's I wouldn't I wouldn't have a problem myself with her criticizing Paul, but that, yeah, but that's my my different um, view of what it, what it's appropriate to do with the Bible, I guess. Yeah, and that's a great point, Alexis. That that. You're, you're right. It's difficult to tell exactly what she what she means when she's getting there. And and because it because it is very much uh, a rhetorically effective passage. And and I think that was probably the point. But I don't know. Maybe it's also just um, a kind of scholarly itch for more information. You know, I kind of wish that she would write a much longer essay on some of the same ideas so that I could really, you know, I could have understood a little bit more what some of these implications are behind what she's saying. Speaking of which, we should probably sometime have an episode that's on her theology because she has a lot of theological writings, which I have not read, um, or perhaps I would know more of what to say about her theology here, but I want to read her theology now, and um, that would be a good, I think, future episode idea. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, particularly because a lot of stuff that's coming out and her idea of you should do the job that's proper for you, so much of that is also coming from the same place as her as her other work, The Mind of the Maker, where she talks about how it is our nature to create because we were made by a creator. Um, And that also, I think, all is feeding into and coming and also springing from her theology. Definitely. Um, so what uh, was there anything else, Marie, that you particularly um, wanted to to kind of go through for our listeners in the second essay? Um, well, I wanted to say you guys uh, how you guys responded to that section where the genders have been reversed. And she's playing with these strictures placed on women in society by asking the reader to imagine what if it were men that were treated this way? What, what did you guys think of the, that section? 
Um, I, I loved it. <laughs> I actually read almost the entirety of it aloud to David because I, I think, you know, so often I, th- I think men can struggle to, to get inside a, a, of a woman's perspective in the sense of, you know, and, and I don't think it's for lack of trying, but, you know, I think she really, by, by reversing the genders, I think she does such a good job of kind of showing ways that women, um, that, that really that their spheres are mapped out for them so often to use um, one of her phrases when she's talking about how Jesus never mapped out women's spheres. And I, I particularly loved, she, she began that section by saying, probably no man has ever troubled to imagine how strange his life would appear to himself if it were unrelentingly assessed in terms of his maleness. And yeah. I was, yes, it was just, it was a perfect kind of encapsulation of what she's trying to say and what so often I think um, men don't understand because this doesn't happen to them. Um, and, you know, she talks about what, you know, he, he would have to deal with people writing books called History of the Male or Males of the Bible. That one cut particularly close to home because so often, um, as you mentioned before, um, we have these, you know, kind of women of the Bible books. Like, look, this appeals to you. You're a woman. And there's also these women that are in the Bible, you know, and things like that. And I just, I was kind of laughing out loud when he or she talks about how if uh, if a man gave an interview to a reporter or performed any unusual exploit, he would find it recorded in such terms as these. The first, I'm just going to say the first example, Professor Bracht, although a distinguished botanist, is not in any way an unmanly man. He has, in fact, a wife and seven children. Tall and burly, the hands with which he handles his delicate specimens are as gnarled and powerful as those of a Canadian lumberjack. And she goes on to talk about his mustache, swaggering mustache and swilling beer and, you know, that kind of qualification of the accomplishment by making sure that that there's that he but he's still a manly man. He's still a man, even though he's accomplished something I thought was almost like painfully accurate even to so often the way it is that women uh, are talked about today, successful women, that there's this this really uh anxiety to still show that but this woman is still a woman don't worry she still you know is wearing high heels and she still totally balances her work and home life and and spends time with her children and that kind of tone i think is absolutely still present even though this was written in you know uh back in the mid 20th century so i don't know alexis what did you think about that section well i I did think it was very effective um i think i think uh, as you pointed out it's, it's still very much an issue and it was interesting to read this against the backdrop of uh, of the current election um, cycle, uh, without a desire yeah. to, get, to get into any of that. But just just to read this uh, sort of against that backdrop was very interesting, given a lot of the pieces that have been written about whether certain issues and and questions would be discussed uh, if we were looking at uh, two male male candidates with. Uh, uh, with uh, the 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 qualifications equivalent to our current candidates, or two females, I guess for that matter, um, if gender were not part of that discussion, uh, what would change? And I, I know a lot of people who think nothing would change at all, and some people who don't. But uh, that I thought was particularly interesting. The the how how modern, how how prescient uh, this this was, uh, how accurate it remains. Um, I I am interested to know. I, I think it's certainly true that it is not as pervasive a phenomenon for men to experience this. But I think within the church, um, it's not completely absent. Um, and I, I think part of that is what I what I think is an appropriate inquiry into what it means to be created as a woman and what it means to be created as a man. And I do think those are, are 
distinctive things, even though I might be hard to sort of fill in those categories with, with anything um, that would be a, a, a constant of any kind. I do think it means something, and I think that's a worthwhile goal to, to examine the scriptures and try to see uh, what does it mean to reflect the image of God as a woman? What does it mean to reflect the image of God as a man? Are there distinctives and what are they? But I think in our eagerness to do that uh, in some branches of the church, we have done masculinity, what we've been doing to femininity for so long, and we have we have cherry-picked the qualifications or the habits or the hobbies or the attributes that uh, correlate to masculinity, not based on biblical categories or biblical evidence, but based on cultural categories and evidence. So, um, you know, churches that do things like, say, have a, a man camp or, or a men's event, um, and it, just like they would have a women's event, and the women's event, you know, we might be annoyed because they did pedicures and, uh, you know, and I don't know, had a Tupperware party or something, something that they think of, you know, people think of as feminine, but that a significant number of women would say, that's not me. Am I, am I not a woman? Am I not welcome at this event? Because I don't fit these cultural stereotypes that in no way are based on scripture. Uh, in the same way, if you have a men's event and it's all based on learn how to uh, to shoot an arrow and learn how to fire a gun and uh, let's all you know stand around and see who can belch the alphabet. And if you have someone in your congregation who uh, is maybe gifted in songwriting or in poetry, um, uh, you know, and and in in that way reflects the abilities we see in King David, um, you know, to to do those things. Uh, you know that's not a not not an unmasculine thing to do. We we see men in the Bible extolled for doing those things, but we're maybe not making space for that always in our men's events. Now, it's certainly I don't think they get it out in the culture the same way, but I think there can be this pressure that it what it means to be masculine is this this host of things that maybe don't uh, don't reflect what it actually means in the Bible, and that that can be unnecessarily exclusive and and detrimental. Uh, for the men. Uh, and in many ways, maybe it's a helpful taste to them of what women have to experience, not just at a women's event at church, you know, once in a while, but sort of constantly uh, across all spheres. Um, so that was, that was one of the things that made me think of, um, just because I was just talking to my mom about that the other day about um, the men's events and whether or not they are unnecessarily exclusive uh, for, for men who are not gifted or interested in those traditional hyper-masculine activities that, that we celebrate sometimes in the church. That is a great point and not something that had occurred to me, but I, I, I do think that you're right. We were talking about how, um, and Marie pointed out that she, she talks about trousers and the, the kind of um, the suggestiveness or the kind of sexual availability implied and how um, she talks about women being reduced to kind of their reproductive functions or faculties. But I do think you're, you're right, Alexis, that it, not even just with hobbies and things, but I think that, that in the church women, and you're right, and men, I think, are sometimes, at least in the complementarian church, are sometimes reduced to their kind of reproductive or kind of familial faculties. And I think you can see that just in the sense that it's very, very rare to see a man in um, a high position of leadership in a church who's not, who is unmarried. Um, there's, I think there's almost this kind of, not suspicion, but there's this idea that a guy who doesn't have a wife and a family is maybe not completely mature. And I think that in that way, there's also that kind of reducing of him to his kind of um, to that kind of reproductive imperative or a, a kind of family centeredness that women 
pretty much always have to deal with. But you're right. I think I think that does sometimes happen in the church. And I think um, honestly that the the antidote into the the ways that women and men experience that in the church probably is something like um, more of a Sayers type view of men and women as humans, as individuals you know, who maybe don't always want to go have a chili cook-off and shoot things until they're dead, or maybe don't always just want to bake cupcakes. I think that, you know, Sayers would probably feel like both of those are, are kind of ridiculous because it, it's pandering to stereotypes. Yeah, that, that application to um, the church activities and the uh, creation or performance of gender in the church, that's definitely uh, definitely good points. Um Something that struck me in this passage, too, in terms of its present day applicability, which is, yeah, this is another passage that uh, struck me as to how how prescient she really feels, um, is the way that it points out the severity of the strictures that the surveillance that's enforced on women in terms of gender performance um, in contrast to the the way that of course the self surveillance in terms of gender performance is enforced on men as well in terms of are am I performing masculinity well enough um, am I a real man um, these kinds of things that you are talking about in relation to um, the idea of masculinity and the complementarian church is you know applicable to in many ways to to the larger society as you're saying it's coming from um, but that surveillance doesn't necessarily carry with it the same restrictions as it does um, for women in some ways. Though at the same time, um, it can definitely be as severe um, for the individual male in terms of uh, his gender performance. So that's something that should be noted too. And there's the other factor of the way that um, both men and women in the under heteronormativity are constantly surveilling a performance as well to avoid the appearance of being queer, for example. Um, so that would be another aspect of uh, this surveillance that she's pointing out. Um, but it's just the severity of the strictures on women that just is so clearly pointed out here and remains relevant is what I'm saying. Well, do we want to say anything else about the second essay? Because if not, we, we probably need to be moving on to Gaudy Night. Let's go on to Gaudy Night. I'm excited to talk about it. Thank you so much, listeners, for listening to our discussion of Dorothy Sayers' Are Women Human? and The Human Not Quite Human. Thank you for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have topic or reading recommendations for future shows, or if you just want to drop us a line, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. For show notes for this and other episodes, check out ChristianHumanist.org. Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Podcast Network. Kristen Philippic is our publishing liaison, and Elizabeth Bremner is our intern. For Marie Haas and Alexis Neal, I'm Katie Grubbs. Tune in in two weeks for the second half of this discussion on the feminism of Dorothy Sayers, in which we will be discussing her novel, Gaudy Night. Until then, in Essentials Unity, in Non-Essentials Liberty, and in All Things Love. <laughs>